0: Today's episode of School PR Drive Time is brought to you by Granicus. Welcome to another episode of School PR Drive Time, a podcast produced by NCSPRA. I'm Dr. Stacia Harris, a member of the NCSPRA Media Team, and I'm the Director of Communications for Buncombe County Schools. I am joined today by Brent Campbell, Chief Communications and External Relations Officer with Winston-Salem for Scythe County Schools. Welcome, Brent. Thank you for co-hosting with me today.
1: Good afternoon. Hello.
0: Well, in today's episode, we're exploring the topic of crisis management and crisis communications and important lessons learned. Joining us today is August Vernon, the director of the Forsyth County Office of Emergency Management in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. I experienced a presentation that he made to first responders here in Western North Carolina about active shooter response training, and he also teaches classes for public information officers.
1: And Stacia, I've worked with August for many years in many different capacities over my time. And today, he has a lot of information to share. He's going to share a behind-the-scenes look at how emergency management and communications really go hand-in-hand and some important lessons learned over the 30 years of public service and emergency management experience.
0: Well, we have lots to cover. Let's start the show.
1: Hello, August, and welcome to School PR Drive Time. Let's start off by you telling us a little bit about your background in public safety and crisis and emergency management.
2: Uh, Awesome, and absolutely, and thank you uh, to both of you for the opportunity to be here today on this podcast. Um, So currently, I am the director of the Winston-Salem and Forsyth County Office of Emergency Management, and we're a, a joint city and county office of emergency management. Uh, I have been the director now for almost four years, and prior to that, I was the inaugural emergency services manager for Wake Forest University for three years, where I coordinated crisis planning and management for the university's national and global footprint. And prior to that, I was back at this organization as the operations officer uh, with the city-county office of emergency management for almost 14 years. I also have some uh, background in fire service and the military. So during the past 20 years, I've conducted over 800 public safety classes in, in North Carolina and other states on a variety of topics such as the incident command system, crisis management, active shooters, active assailants, emergency operations, terrorism, and, and other public related topics. I've also coordinated and participated in over 75 exercises, over the past 20 years, including tabletop exercises, functional drills, and full-scale drills, and those have included school system exercises. And as far as responsive, responses have responded to everything, unfortunately, from school shootings, to workplace violence shootings, to tornadoes, to hurricanes, to flooding and ice storms, and plane crashes, and large protests, and a wide variety of other man-made natural disasters and critical incidents. And there's always a lot going on it seems now in today's world.
0: And thank you so much for, for sharing all that with us. And kind of want to let the audience know kind of why we wanted to invite you on the podcast. I, I had um, was able to sit in on a active shooter training that you conducted with first responders here in Western North Carolina. And you mentioned that you also do PIO training. And so that, of course, piqued my interest. And so um, let's just start, with, start there. Walk us through your process when you're dealing with a crisis and talk about how internal and external communication is all tied in.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I kind of feel like I need to start with crisis management 101 um, and really some of the basic items needed for any crisis management team, whether a school system, private industry, government, healthcare, or a corporation, any type of organization. There's really three components and those can be as, as wide and in, in depth as needed. Uh, first is having some type of crisis management team and that can look different for different organizations. Uh, I am certainly not a PIO, but I've had to fill that role before and do the training and and help our POs, including Brent in the past. And obviously I would recommend that your your PIO or PR marketing team, whatever they're called, should be part of a crisis management team at at any level. Um, Also, you need to have what I think is important as emergency manager, some type of location where you could come together physically uh, virtual works very well, even in a crisis, but there really come situations where we've got to get face-to-face. And so you need some type of emergency operation center or, or coordination center. And the third leg of the stool would be you need some kind of plan, a, a crisis management, all hazards plan. So really those three legs of the stool, the team, a location, and a plan, uh, once you have those you can do exercises. You can continue to advance those plans, those training, and kind of build from there. Um, I will say, I was thinking about this the other night that a lot of these incidents that are happening are, are very challenging and can even be overwhelming when they happen. Um, you know, we recently had an incident here nine months ago, a, a large fertilizer plant fire that really, the first few hours felt a little overwhelming, uh, but. Failure is not inevitable, so it's important to be prepared. We can plan and prepare for a lot of these situations. Um, as an emergency manager who's done a lot of planning the past twenty something years, um, it's impossible to plan for every situation. It, it really is. You could have a hundred of the best written plans out there, and then incident one on one will happen that you did not address in your planning. So that's why it's important to have that team, that plan, in that location. And you can really manage any crisis that comes your way. There is no perfect solution or magic formula for managing emergencies, even if a a vendor wants to sell you that, it really doesn't exist. It really comes down to to your people and your personnel. It's important to note that any and all organizations can be quickly overwhelmed in some of these situations. And what makes that a little more challenging that it seems that the public expectations of what local, state, And federal government can do are kind of unrealistic now and ever evolving. Um, What the expectations are that we can do uh, has really changed and the demands have increased in in my, you know, 20 years in emergency management. And maybe one example that I've thought about recently is we all recognize probably every organization that exists at any level of government right now is short-staffed, but the expectations of all the work and things that need to be accomplished um, that's increased even though we recognize we have shorter less staff a shorter amount of resources but demands are increasing uh, so that certainly is concerning in crisis management I think it's important to have uh, you know I call them early warning systems or a tripwire. we don't want to wait till some type of situation of any kind uh, blows up, and it's on the front page of the newspaper, and we didn't inform our leadership and our crisis management team. So I think that we need to have the early, early warning system in place where we can notify our leadership and our crisis management team that we have sensitive items that are come up or, or what I've heard called urgencies before. It's not quite a crisis or an emergency, but it's an urgency. So we probably need to start doing a little planning and discussion around that. Uh, But again, you know, the bottom line is these crises are inevitable, but I think the outcomes can be changed um, with a lot of things, planning, training, exercises, podcasts like this one. I have listened to a couple of the other podcasts. There's a lot of good information there. As always, an emergency manager, um, I'll tell you, practice your plans. You could have the best written plan that was ever been written in the history of the world sitting on a shelf. And if no one's read it, no one's familiar with it, they can't find it, then it's really like you don't even have a plan. And there are some very thorough and well-conceived plans out there, but those preparations don't do any good if no one remembers what to do or can even find a plan, which amazingly does happen. Um, another important component to crisis management, is you've got to have leadership buy-in, or um, some of this is for naught. You know, example, when you're having these training exercises, we've got to include our senior executives or our decision makers who will be making some of these very, if not tactical decisions, and what we call strategic or policy level decisions. Uh, But there's a term I use called uh, some people will just parachute in. They've never showed up at training, they're not familiar with plans, and then something happens and they parachute in with the expectation that they are all knowing and all seeing. And that is it's false and it's not accurate. And it's almost a little uh, negligent and liable, I think, to be honest. So we've got to get those senior executives involved in some of this. When it comes to crisis planning, uh, obviously need a plan in place, but we don't need a 300 page action plan. No one will ever look at that. Uh, Our plans need to be short and clear to mobilize the right people rapidly. You can also have plans for very specific contingencies that are either worst case and are reasonably likely. Example, with a school system, if you have something that happens every year, whether it's weather or something else, then that would be a reasonable scenario you need to address in your crisis planning. Also avoid these cumbersome generic plans that tend to just bog down and be dust collectors. I uh, have walked in offices before, and if someone has their crisis plan holding open the door um, like a brick, then that tells me kind of what they think about their process. So, so we want to avoid those giant plans that collect dust. And in all this planning, and especially when it comes to communications, there's really two parts to communications, both internal and external, though I think it's a little harder now If you send out an internal communication, most likely that's going to turn into an external communication pretty quickly. Uh, But you still need to plan for those two types of communications. As I said earlier, you've got to have a crisis uh, team. Excuse me. Designate and train a crisis team. This is your organization's fire brigade, basically. Everyone has different roles and responsibilities, but with that training and those plans, they can come to very very quickly and mobilized to manage whatever crisis you have. Uh, A plan is only going to be as good as the team that implements it. I've read some research uh, in the past, a couple different articles and academic research that shows around eight out of 10 CEOs of large companies and corporations rely a lot more on their team than a plan. Uh, So I think that's important to note that, that they're doing that. So if, if anything, if you don't have a crisis management team or maybe that team's gotten a little stale, uh, look at selecting members carefully, uh, coach them now and have them and the backups reachable 24-7. Uh, it amazes me even now when unfortunately on a Friday today, we have something happen at four o'clock and people are shocked that we need to mobilize at five o'clock for a conference call or something. Uh, there, you have to understand there are a lot of people that work Monday through Friday, nine to three. It almost seems less than that now. And anything beyond that, uh, they're kind of stretching their capabilities. So we've got to train these individuals. Obviously, the virtual world has become more prevalent and it, it can work exceptionally well. But with the accelerating needs of crisis communications could compel you to convene electronically electronically because we have to meet so quickly now. Um, the days of waiting till tomorrow morning at seven o'clock, we just don't do that anymore. Uh, I've done virtual meetings at 11 o'clock at night because you've got to get together. But as I said earlier, you do need to get face-to-face as soon as possible. We, we can't be too reliant on virtual.
0: Our conversation is just getting started. Stay with us. You're listening to School PR Drive Time.
2: show is sponsored by granicus bringing organizations closer to the people they serve engagement hq by granicus is the world's leading community engagement platform purpose-built to move beyond the vocal minority engage parents teachers business partners, and the community at large through courageous questions and meaningful answers, turning community input into valuable insights and reducing the time to a decision. Learn more about Engagement HQ at granicus.com.
0: Welcome back to School PR Drive Time. Now on with the interview.
2: one new aspect is I was thinking about this presentation that I've talked about a little bit in the past 975 days um, is conspiracy theories. Uh, we're all dealing with conspiracy theories. They've always been there in public safety, but now due to social media, they've been given a voice and are even followed and listened to and, and carried on. Uh, they've always been around, but not at these levels of intensity. And it's, it's a little crazy that we have to mention this in a professional setting, but we do have to deal with conspiracy theories and you have to respond to them now. Uh, They've really become a fact of life in the current national environment. And I've observed that it doesn't matter anymore what type of incident occurs. It could be really anything, even weather related conspiracies come out of that. Um, And especially if something happens in a school Uh, anything happens with government, it's just going to be challenging and those conspiracy theories are going to float to the top. And really in the past, we just ignored these. You know, let's be honest. If someone sends a letter or makes a comment, then that you don't even address it. But with social media, they gain traction and you have to respond to them, even if it's unrealistic and far-fetched. Where this really came into play for us and, and myself was during COVID uh, we ended up doing what was calling, uh, called myth busters. There were so many myths out there to deal with all the false and incorrect information that was out there. FEMA had a myth busters page. And you know some examples we had right here in Forsyth County, people you know, being told that grocery stores were being closed, um, that there were, the National Guard was on I-40 and you had to have documentation to go from one county to the next. And and we had to actually spend time to respond to those uh, when none of them were true. And I think some of that's what led to the great run on the 2020 toilet paper debacle. So also, I am not a social media expert. I'm not on social media. I don't like social media. I don't know anything about social media. But I certainly recognize it it's become an important staple pretty much of all crisis response and crisis management, really communications in general. Um, a few thoughts that I had were number one, beware of Facebook, Facebook experts. We saw this a lot with COVID. Uh, I had no idea we had so many infectious disease specialists in North Carolina. And the same thing with school safety and security experts. I, I had no idea we had so many in our community. Uh, the fertilizer fire that I mentioned, uh, we had a lot of uh, ammonium nitrate experts and explosive experts in our community to the point of they were even posting graphs, charts, diagrams. And some of those actually gained traction. And we had to really respond to that and say, that's not accurate. That's not what we're putting out. So um, you just have to be aware of this and respond to it. And when it comes to social media, I, I cannot emphasize how much faster, bigger, louder, and more impactful it's become. In fact, sometimes I think it can become a bigger crisis than your actual crisis. Uh, it can drive your incident. Uh, unfortunately, we did have a school sh- incident, shooting incident here last year, and social media really can drive a lot of what's happening, and it's really out of our control. We can control what's happening in our environment, but a lot of that's happening outside of our realm, even individuals from out of state posting information and pushing information that's not accurate. Another concern with social media and these challenges is that, and I have to say this carefully, but sometimes the media appears to utilize unvetted and unofficial social media information and posts. A random person off the street can make a, a comment or post something and you're now having to respond to that. Uh, But again, that's not, that's not vetted. It's not accurate. There's no three sources of information to verify anything, but that's just some of the reality around social media now. Also, when it comes to social media and I've realized this um, even at 2 a.m. now people are on what is called real time around the clock, 24 seven and you have a situation, a crisis or an urgency in your school system or organization these real timers are posting, commenting, and responding day and night, even when you're sleeping. And so you may have to get up in the morning and deal with a whole new pile of issues and challenges that are being posted by the uh, round the clockers, the real timers. So, in all these circumstances, and really this is crisis management 101, all you can keep doing is trying to, to monitor this, put your message out, and now. One message a day is probably not enough. So you've got to update your messaging for sure. Probably the fourth part of this, the uh, social media is the abundance of what are called scanner apps. Example one that I listen to, uh, there was an incident in Raleigh last night, and I immediately go to start listening to what they're doing to try to learn from that. What this is, it's thousands of listeners real time across the United States. Are listening to the response in your community. Even if they can't listen, example, to your school system radios, they can listen to the responders going to your incident. Uh, Not everyone has encrypted radios. In the good old days, uh, we always had people in the community that had a Bearcat scanner and they might listen, uh, including the media. But now it's around the clock, 24-7 from the -the round-the-clockers thousands of them. We've now had incidents here where thousands of people around the United States are listening to us uh, and what we're doing. So you, you've got to consider that. And, and we see that when an incident happens, something said on a radio and minutes later, it's being posted on social media. And, and we're trying to figure out how do they know to do that. So again, you know, the crisis management team, the crisis management plan and a location for them to muster would, would be those top Three things to think about for crisis management.
1: You, you touched on what I was going to say, August, which was in our incident with our our shooting. Um, your 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 mention of the scanner apps and and Broadcastify and those things did tie right back to social media in many cases. And things folks were hearing bits and pieces of became truth and reality on social media, and they didn't have the whole story. And so. Those two very good information for folks to think about how those two can play off of each other and something we didn't have to think about just in a few years ago um, when we did this. So in talking to your PIOs, though, and in your PIO course, what are some of the things that you share with them um, as most important takeaways?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, I, you know, there's a lot of good PIO courses out there. I would be a miss if I didn't mention the Federal Emergency Management Agency. Uh, basic PIO course, an advanced PIO course. Uh, these are taught all over the United States. They're taught across North Carolina. They're at no cost. Um, you know, something to check in with your local emergency management about those courses. They're, they're pretty excellent. Uh, and uh, I also tried to think about this as, you know, what are some things, you know, if you're PIOs, you already know some of these things. So I try to think outside the box a little bit. So important takeaways, probably the first is, In any incident, take care of people. Um, I don't care what kind of organization you have, what type of incident or events occurred, even if it's a reputation management concern, uh, someone's posted something, a student has a gun in school, it doesn't matter. Uh, Always take care of people and explain how you're doing it. Um, And that can mean different things to different people. But just think about your community, in your messaging and taking care of people i don't care what the incident is and there's a lot of things you'll have to address but let's figure out how we're going to take care of our people first you know taking care of the victims remains job number one for everyone in our incident command system training the ics training the first step is always life safety and we have to really focus on that and if it's affecting or impacted people they're going to know they're going to want to know whether they are safe and that you're doing your reasonable best to take care of them, Um, even if it may be unrealistic. But they want to know what you're doing. The media and all the observers, they want to know what you're doing to take care of the victims, depending on the impact of the incident. So always act and speak to reassure them that it is so. And again, it doesn't matter what type of incident has occurred. This is where some organizations have really kind of missed the ball. Uh, You can be efficient, you can be quick, but you've got to take care of people. Second, um, my old director, Melton Sadler, that Brent remembers, uh, who did unfortunately pass away several years ago, and that's why I'm in his position now, he had a comment that he always made that was uh, basically, quote unquote, the time that the mop flops is not the time to exchange business cards. So basically when the mop flops, that is not the time to try and introduce yourself to people and here's my business card. Um, And and I've heard that in lots of other crisis communications training and we'll we'll continue to reinforce that. That's why it's very important to try to build these relationships and these networks prior to any major incident or crisis. Um, This can be done in that planning process we talked about. This can be done when conducting exercises with inside and external partners. And I will say one challenge the past 975 days is we've become very, very reliant on virtual meetings and the very heavy volume of virtual meetings. And it's a little more challenging to network and build relationships virtually. Uh, There are people during the height of COVID that I went for an entire year and only ever met them virtually. And Now I'm meeting people that I've not met in person for years and years, even though I've been working with them. So I think from a crisis management perspective, we've got to do these face-to-faces. There's got to be some in-person face-to-face time. Uh, I'm a real big believer in going to get coffee with people, going to grab a Subway sandwich, and just spend a little time talking with people. And I'd rather do that than two o'clock tonight and a major event occurs and we've never met or or spoken before. And third, there is a term that uh, came out a few years ago as I tried to figure out what in the world was happening in the United States where no one believed anything that government at any level said and everyone questioned authority and even groups and organizations that typically would not are groups that were not ever really heavily questioned. Example, maybe like a school board Um, This term is called truth decay, and it's a really growing factor in crisis management, crisis communications. An organization called the RAND Corporation, R-A-N-D, which is a large multinational defense corporation, uh, which covers a lot of different things. They define truth decay as the diminishing role of facts and data in American public life. And you can look this up. Uh, Look up Rand Corporation Truth Decay, and they have videos. They have academic studies. They have white papers. They have all the data to really back this up on what's happening. And some of the trends that characterize Truth Decay are an increasing disagreement about facts and analytical interpretations of facts and data. I'm a big believer in let's show facts and data and truth. And really, that doesn't have as much as an impact it used to anymore which makes it a little challenging because you're really, at that point, playing on people's emotions when we rather show facts and data in public safety. There's been an increased line, a blurring of the line between opinion and fact. For some people, their opinion has now become fact. And it's hard to share truth with individuals who believe that, even when you are trying to be open, transparent, and share all the truth with them. The increasing relative volume and resulting influence of opinion and personal experiences over fact. You can try to explain the fact of what occurred or the fact of the matter, but a personal experience that a group or someone had years ago is obviously going to tarnish their view of what's happening and they believe their experience is more important than whatever you're trying to relay to them and really just the overall declining trust in formally respected sources of facts and information. So this is challenging for organizations and even more challenging for those PIOs in these organizations trying to get what is basically fact and data out to a maybe more reluctant community or public. Um, And really probably the fourth part as far as the PIO training you know, you, you have to look at definitions of crisis or crises. Uh, we know we're in a crisis when a couple of things are going to start happening. When a crisis happens, you don't have days and days to make decisions. That doesn't happen. Your decisions must be made within a very narrow time constraint. You're never going to have enough time to make the decisions you need to make, but you've got to make a decision. Um, that decision, once you make it, maybe be irreversible. reversible. Do we evacuate this neighborhood or not? Do we evacuate this school or not? That Once that happens, that's irreversible. It's, it's hard to change that. But again, you're having to make uninformed decisions without the best information to make those decisions. Also in a crisis, we can make a decision right now, but I don't know what the outcome of that is going to be. That's a lot of uncertainty and unknowns in a crisis. Or I can only look ahead an hour. I can't tell you what eight hours is going to look like. All these decisions in a crisis uh, are always going to be made with imperfect or incomplete or even the wrong information. So you're already from a position of weakness in a crisis. You don't have all the information you have. You're having to hurry up make decisions. And probably a key thing with this is in a crisis, no decision you ever make will make everyone happy. Uh, Most decisions will be unpopular. I think one example for schools would be, do we close or do we delay due to weather? No matter what decision you make, uh, truth decay kicks in and your decision is going to be unpopular no matter what you pick, even if you're doing it for, you know, some other things to consider for for public information officers, uh, because sometimes they have to advocate for some crisis management when dealing with leadership. Um, It's important to note that managing a crisis is far different than normal daily decision making. Uh, We all work in institutions and and governmental organizations where high level decision making is typically committee based decision culture. And, you know, that require extensive deliberation and consensus building outside of the public purview. Uh, there's even a term called deliberative dialogue, where everyone has to have input into these conversations before you make decisions. And that works in normal day-to-day activities when you have days, weeks, and months to work on projects. Uh, this is not effective in any type of crisis. We, we, we've got to make decisions in a different way. That's what the crisis management team has laid out for, to make those decisions as quick as they possibly can. And I think kind of last note here, and in, in PIOs and crisis communications are an essential part of a crisis management team. Without a strong crisis management team presence, and we see this time and time again, for those of us that review lessons learned and watch other organizations go through crises, uh, institutions will typically circle the wagon, as the term is called, we will circle the wagons. We're going to water down our communications, and we're going to drag out our responses to media, public, and information requests. And and once you start doing that, it's very hard to recover from that and, and build that public trust again.
0: This concludes part one of Lessons Learned in Crisis Communications. Part two is coming up next. Thanks to Granicus for their support of School PR Drive Time.